Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. I don't know if you've experienced this yourself, but let me tell you, you can get into all sorts of embarrassing situations if you walk into the middle of someone else's conversation. Lou and I were in a retro furniture shop in Smith Street the other day, looking at some incredibly expensive mid-century modern lounges, when I accidentally walked between a couple as she half-turned and said, that one's really interesting, isn't it? Thinking, of course, I was a husband. To which I replied instantly, yes, it's lovely. But I'm guessing you weren't talking to me. Now, I want to suggest to you we're at a point exactly like that here this morning in this section of John's Gospel, which again, if you're with us regularly, you'll know we're working through a section sometimes known as the Farewell Discourse, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his own impending death. Much as it seems the Queen did with Prince Charles. Which means Jesus is saying some things to them that he's not actually saying directly to us as 21st century readers who are kind of just walking in between them mid-conversation. I mean, I guess if I'd wanted, I could have gone ahead and bought that interesting side table with a woman I'd never met before. But that would have been kind of weird. Just as weird, perhaps, to intercept a conversation between Jesus and his 11 remaining disciples and assume it's immediately all about us without pausing for a moment to step back and see the context of the original conversation. In this case, there is something of a theological watershed at stake. It's one of those points where the water runs down the mountain on one side to one river and runs down the mountain on another side to another river, separated by just one point, in a sense, of interpretation. It's arguably the difference between what you might call a more Pentecostal or charismatic understanding of Christian experience and what others might term a more reformed view. And it all comes down to this question of the expectations of the Holy Spirit to tell us things, to routinely and regularly speak to us in a mystical way in daily life. Now, I'm not going to debate this morning whatever spiritual experiences you may have had, and I'm not going to subject you to mine. Presbyterians, perhaps, are infamous for being sticklers on a definitional level for perhaps the place of the Holy Spirit in the, in the doctrine of the Trinity, while at the same time the accusation is made by our more Pentecostal brothers and sisters that we're just a dry old bunch who functionally ignore anything vaguely spiritual, might even raise our hands above our heads to change a light bulb, lest someone think we're worshipping. 
let alone listen to the whisperings of the Spirit. So let me ask you the question, what should we expect as regular 21st century Christians of direct revelation from the Spirit? Which we'll see in a moment is what the passage is talking about. Because as I said on one reading of this passage, perhaps it should be quite a lot. I'm referring especially to verses 12 to 15, right at the heart of the passage. Now, if you can see the screen, the verses will come up there. Otherwise, print it in your order of service. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now how cool is that? If indeed the Spirit will speak to you and me directly and tell you and me personally what he's heard directly from Jesus. The Spirit will whisper in your heart and tell you what's still to come. Comings and goings of kings and queens. Better still, race for at Flemington. More than that, apparently, no need for the Bible. You'll know everything for yourself. Unless, of course... If you're not hearing anything, and I guess that's because you're not really spiritual enough. That's going to leave you feeling bad about yourself and confused or perhaps faking it till you make it or looking for some high-paid pastor or guru who will tell you about their latest direct revelations firsthand from the Spirit. Where are you with that? Feeling like a second-hand, second-class Christian perhaps? Or maybe just deeply sceptical about the whole thing? See, if it sounds like that's what Jesus is promising and you're a little bit disappointed by the result, maybe you've walked into the middle of someone else's conversation. Because clearly Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit was coming and that there would be directly revealed truth on tap, which again is a common expectation in some branches of Christian theology. Except, of course, for the possibility that this particular promise is directly to his disciples as they pivot to their new job as apostles and authorised conveyors of his message, for which he's saying they'll need supernatural help and they will have it. In our passage last week, if you were here, you might remember Jesus said this, talking about the Holy Spirit there, who he called the helper. 
He said, but when the Helper comes, who I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Moving into our reading this morning, verses 4 and 5, it's clear that Jesus is still talking directly to the team he's about to leave behind, who are devastated by the news of his departure. Jesus says to them, Peter and James and and Andrew and the other guys, he says to them in verse 6, because I've told you what's going to happen, sorrow has filled your heart. But he says, I have got more to say as well. Too much to tell you now. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. Now I heard someone suggest the other day, by the way, that that's a good verse for preachers to frame and put on the wall to keep them brief. I'll do my best. But Jesus is saying to them, you guys... If you're feeling unprepared, don't worry, there's more to come. And in spite of what's about to happen, I will still be there for you, empowering you by the Spirit. This little team of trainees who are about to lose their rabbi in the most terrifying circumstances... Now again, will you notice, he's talking specifically to the 11 in this very concrete circumstance and not at this point directly to us because we we simply weren't in the right place at the right time to physically see him at all. His words in verse 16 are kind of like a riddle which is repeated three times in the passage. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. By which, of course, he's saying to those who are seeing him in the flesh that he's about to be taken away from them and then return. Now, friends, again, it seems there are two types of Christians I've come across at this point those who want every word and promise of the Bible to apply directly to them all the time, and particularly right now. And then, of course, on the other extreme, there are those who think that nothing in the Bible applies to them at all because none of it's relevant. But look, before you throw the baby out with the bathwater, the very first and simplest step is read in context. Get the original meaning first, which is what we're doing now. And then ask the question, how does it apply to God's people today? Because again, as events unfold, of course they won't see him any longer. Because they'll be lying dead in the darkness of a dusty borrowed tomb. And there's no surprise in verse 17, they're saying, huh, what's he talking about? What's this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? 
And so he explains in straightforward terms exactly what's about to happen. You will be crying, he says, while the world laughs. But don't lose heart because that's not the end of the story. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, verse 20, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When my wife Lou, who you might have met serving the coffees this morning, when she was giving birth to Nathan, our first, I distinctly remember her screaming the words, never again, through clenched teeth. Then, then she had some gas and she looked at me and she said, did you say oranges? Which I hadn't even remotely said and didn't make any sense at all. I just thought I'd mention it. Uh, but, the, but then, here's the point. An hour later when it was all over and she was looking down at his cute little face, this lovely child, the screaming was forgotten. That wasn't so bad. Astonishing. Jesus says it's going to be like that. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Which means again, of course, he's talking about his death and his resurrection that they are going to witness firsthand. Still slightly cryptic. But of course, as it becomes clear over the following weekend, will become the centrepiece of the message these apostles take to the world. But look, here's the point. When it does all become clear, these apostolic messengers of Jesus are going to have all the help they need to glorify Jesus to the world. And I'd invite you to look at verses 13 to 16 again in the light of that. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. An ironclad guarantee, as Jesus has said before, that the Spirit's going to bring back to their minds his words, his teaching. But more than that, they'll be guided into all the truth, that they will have insight into what's to come. And that through all that, Jesus himself will be glorified. Which, friends, is exactly what has happened in history. As these apostles go on to preach in the marketplaces and 
before emperors and kings as they take on the mantle of authority in leading the church. And most especially from our point of view this morning, as the apostles like John commit to writing the gospel truth for our benefit as a future generation and write with a kind of spiritual authority which means that if you want to hear from God, you need to listen to these words as the Spirit takes from Jesus and declares it to the apostles who declare it to us with the sole purpose, you'll notice again in verse 14, of glorifying, honouring Jesus. Now friends, for some of you that might disappoint you a little. That it's not a promise from Jesus that the Holy Spirit will necessarily directly illuminate you, particularly with the results of race four at Flemington or even the grand final. But that he has done that for the apostolic teaching that makes up our New Testament. But what I'm saying is exactly what has been held as the doctrine of the one holy and apostolic church since day one. It's the reason those of us who are Christians step back and allow the teaching of these same apostles as they pass on the teaching of Jesus to shape our lives and our attitudes and our values and our faith and our loves. The Queen herself put it this way, to what greater inspiration and counsel can we turn than to the imperishable truth to be found in this treasure house, the Bible. Apostolic teaching, spirit-inspired truth, which of course is then fanned into flame in our hearts by that same Holy Spirit. So let me come briefly to the Holy Spirit and us you and me. Because it's a more than reasonable question to ask, what should we expect as ordinary Christians from the work of the Holy Spirit? And look, there is some guidance here in verses 8 to 11, because when the Spirit comes, which, just to be clear, is what happened after the resurrection on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, as well as informing the teaching of the apostles, the Spirit, we're told, is going to be very much at work in the hearts of their hearers as well, people like us. And the Spirit will, in some sense, hold the world to account. Last Sunday night, we baptised Grace Bailey, who told us her story of faith. That one day, a few years ago now, she realised, she said, there was a darkness inside her. A selfishness, she said. A short temper. And she said that somehow 
she found it difficult to find the words, but that she was convicted on that day, that she didn't want that darkness of heart to define her. So in simple terms, she was convicted, was suddenly, in a sense, convinced that she was in the wrong, that she needed to submit herself to this King Jesus, which she has been doing ever since. She was convicted, in the words of Jesus here, of her sin, of her need for righteousness, of which side of the line she wanted to be on for the coming judgment. And so she believed and found then a new righteousness that was simply a gift given, moving from darkness to light. Knowing that in the cross... The story will sound folding in coming weeks. It wasn't actually Jesus being judged, but the ruler of this world, the ruler of darkness being overthrown. All of that part of the conviction in Grace's heart by the Spirit, which although in a sense verses 8 to 11 are full of complex ideas and multi-level meaning and syntax it is a transforming experience and when he comes Jesus says the spirit he will convict the world as the apostles preach concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin he says because they don't believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Friends, in short, for all of us who believe, the work of the Spirit is to bring conviction that the world's judgment on Jesus has been profoundly wrong, that he does indeed rule with the Father. And like Elizabeth, our Queen, And like Grace Bailey, we need to bow to him. The truth of the gospel is passed on through these spirit-inspired apostolic words. That same spirit brings conviction as we hear it. Friends, it may be that in spite of all the distractions of this week, in spite of a stumbling, fumbling preacher, in spite of the poor example of so many failed and disappointing Christians who you've come across, it may be that even today you sense some of that same conviction as you hear these spirit-inspired words of the Apostle John. The same spirit that inspired the words moving your heart all with the intention, you'll remember from verse 14, of glorifying Jesus. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Look, my time is up. The rest of the chapter is kind of climactic in that it's the point at which the disciples finally get it. For a bunch of guys who go on to change the course of the world 
by their teaching, they are remarkably slow on the uptake. They say to Jesus, at last you're speaking plainly, verse 29. We believe you came from God. To which Jesus says, do you really? Do you believe now because the reality is they still haven't been through the furnace. They are not as ready as they think. They're convinced at last, they say, that he came from the Father, but the process of going back to the Father is going to involve the cross and his resurrection. And of that they still have no idea. So the next day, Jesus says, it'll be every man for himself. Behold, he says, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. We'll see exactly that unfold in chapter 19. But friends, can I encourage you two things as we finish? These apostles started out with feet of clay. Their references are barely glowing. And yet against all the odds, Jesus entrusted them with his word of hope for the future and promises to empower their teaching to stand for all generations. And the reality is, he's done that. Their words have been translated into more languages, I think, than any other text, have been copied with great care and handed down through the generations, have by the Spirit transformed countless lives and caused people to glorify Jesus and to know God through him. Apostolic words on record for our benefit. Friends, Jesus is not promising here that the Spirit will directly give you the same level of authority and first-hand revelation he's promised the apostles. But the Spirit will bring you conviction and turn you toward Jesus to hear his word. If that's happening to you today, can I encourage you? Take notice. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne. 